My name is Dr. Catherine Chatterley. I'm the director of the Canadian Institute for the Study of Anti-Semitism based in Winnipeg in Canada. And uh, I teach history at the University of Manitoba as well. My presentation today is entitled The Anti-Semitic Imagination. It's extracted from the introduction of the book that I'm currently working on, on the history of anti-Semitic imagery. Paradoxically, I argue in this paper that anti-Semitism is one of the most historically determined phenomena in human history, but it is also characterized by a figure who runs consistently through the history of anti-Semitism like a red thread. The scholarly study of anti-Semitism has been a small, specialized enterprise, overshadowed and absorbed by the larger field of Holocaust studies. In fact, Many of the classic studies of anti-Semitism were precipitated by the rise of Hitler and can be seen as attempts to explain the Nazi culmination of this millennial hatred. Scholars such as James Parks, writing from 1930, Cecil Roth from 1938, Joshua Trachtenberg from 1943, and Leon Polyakov from 1955, were all engaged in an investigative process of trying to comprehend how six million Jews could be annihilated in the very heartland of modern civilization. Historically, the field has interpreted anti-Semitism as a Western phenomenon, a product of Christendom, although one influenced by ancient anti-Jewish attitudes expressed largely by writers of the Roman Empire in the period between Nero and Hadrian. With our focus shifting today to so-called new forms of anti-Semitism, and I place new in quotation marks, and especially to that of the Islamic world, it is important to re-examine our assumptions and clarify once again our definitions about the history and nature of this phenomenon. Jewish tradition explains anti-Semitism as natural to the structure of human existence. Quite simply, Esau hates Jacob, always has and always will. This primal hatred of the Jews exists in all places and at all times, independent of culture or religion or socioeconomic circumstances. The rabbis did not contextualize anti-Semitism. It was not understood as a cause and effect kind of phenomenon, but existed as an eternal aspect of existence bound up with the destiny of the Jewish people. This traditional rabbinic understanding of anti-Semitism rests upon a conception of Gentiles as an undifferentiated mass whose inner core or Esau-ness remains consistent across time and space despite historical and cultural differences. It is also true that this conflict was perceived as a case of mutual hostility, rivalry, and competition rather than a simple one-sided assault against Israel, the people, not the state. While there is much to be learned from this traditional reading of anti-Semitism, and one can certainly understand the perspective of the rabbis given the persistent and irrational nature of Jew hatred, however, for a historian, this kind of trans-historical interpretation is fundamentally inadequate. Anti-Semitism is not a seven-headed hydra, popping up in different places at different times as, as some kind of constant presence in human history. It is actually one of humanity's most culturally specific and historically determined phenomena. It is the product of the rancorous separation between Judaism and the Jesus movement of the first century. During the next 400 years, rabbinic Judaism and Christianity were finally and irrevocably divorced, with the church in control of the state and its legal code as the new imperial religion. In this period, 
we know that the church worked relentlessly to purify itself, rooting out Judaizers, those individuals still sympathetic to Judaism, and to separate Christians and Jews to prevent them from celebrating holidays and observing Shabbat together, which people did in great numbers. The church's theology of separation was seen as necessary to establish its authority over society and became the basis for European legislation, regulating Jewish existence under Christendom for centuries. Natural and inevitable, the separation between Jews and Christians was not. Retrospectively, we know that the triumphant and controlling position of Christianity in the empire and eventually throughout Europe led to the systematic exclusion of Jews as a collectivity from mainstream Christian society, to their deep and abiding marginalization, eventual demonization, and to their peculiar positioning in Western societies as middlemen associated with the despised money occupations. What we see in the history of anti-Semitism is a compounding of stigmatization and hatred, which over time results in the production of a composite character that integrates religious and economic themes in a powerfully seamless, toxic, and reinforcing manner. By approximately 1000 CE, the continent of Europe was Christianized, albeit unevenly and idiosyncratically in many places. The period of the High Middle Ages, approximately 1000 to 1300 CE, is in fact the actual laboratory that creates what we know as the anti-Semitic imagination. And it is during these specific centuries that anti-Semitism becomes a popular mass phenomenon. This vivid, image-obsessed imagination was Catholic, and it was fed not just visually, but orally. It had a character at its center that appeared to have the power and determination to control the world, to influence events, and to wreak utter havoc. That character, that figment of the European Christian imagination is the Jew, and I place that abstraction in quotation marks. He is the tormentor and killer of Christ, the savior of universal humanity, according to Christian theology, who continues until the end of time to work against the church, its gospel, and its people. He is the ritual murderer and host desecrator who reenacts the crucifixion with these homicidal Jewish rituals. The well poisoner and the magician, both of whom are in league with Satan against Christian society, and of course the usurer who recalled Judas Iscariot, the archetypal traitor. It is this character of the Jew that populates the anti-Semitic imagination it is by the appearance of this character that we know we are in the presence of anti-Semitism, and not some form of xenophobia or hostility, be they the product of culture, politics, or even personal conflict. Regardless of European region, religion, religious denomination, language, or nationality, the characteristics of the Jew are remarkably consistent across time and space. We see shifts in the articulation of perception over time in different contexts, but not in the basic perception itself, to quote Katz and Gilman. Wherever Christianity moved, it brought with it implicitly the character of the Jew. Nothing else can explain the presence of this character and the hatred of it, or for it, among indigenous peoples on several continents, including Canada, sub-Saharan Africans, the Japanese, or account for its absence in parts of the world unaffected by European imperialism, or where European missionary efforts failed to have any real effect like China and India. Anti-Semitism is carried inside Western culture in the most complex way, 
because the Jew is sewn into the fabric of the Christian imagination. It is crucial that we remember that until the last quarter of the 20th century, the West was a Christian civilization. And however secularized and multicultural Western societies are today, they remain saturated with Christian symbol, metaphor, and imagery. One might argue that one aspect of Christianity that has been retained after the Holocaust, despite the waning of religious belief and practice in Western societies, is a deep ambivalence and unease about the Jewish people and one's relationship to them. Although we cannot quantify these attitudes, we know there is also suspicion, resentment, contempt, and ongoing hatred in parts of the population as well. The central story of Western civilization is Christ's passion, understood until perhaps a generation ago as his suffering and death at the hands of the Jews, or at the hands of Rome at the conspiratorial manipulation of the Jews, which is clearly presented as fact in the four Gospels of the New Testament. For centuries, every generation of Europeans met the Jewish people through this story, through their extremely negative depiction in this text. If these Europeans knew no Jews personally, and one has to realize that this is the reality for the vast majority of people then and now, regardless of location, due to the reality of demographics. This is the only exposure they were given to the Jewish people. In other words, the Jew of the New Testament becomes the real existing Jew, with no awareness that this character is a creation of the Christian imagination. Over centuries of telling and retelling in Europe, the Gospels create a character who is a composite of several extremely negative figures, Caiaphas, Judas, and the character of the crowd, particularly as it's represented in the book of Matthew, who retain their Jewishness and therefore actually come to define it for Christians, while Jesus, his disciples, the Holy Family, Simon and Veronica, are freed of their Jewishness and are perceived as Christians instead. You have generations of Christians who do not know, historically, because they are never taught that Jesus, his mother, and the disciples are Jewish, or for that matter, that his beautiful and humane teachings emanate from Judaism and not Christianity, which of course didn't exist at the time. Rather, the Gospels depict the Jew as conspiratorial, vengeful, hateful, unrelentingly cruel, unforgiving, arrogant, blind to the truth, corrupted, especially by money, treasonous, criminal, and at bottom, evil. Every one of these characteristics is seen as fundamentally antithetical to good Christian behavior. Instead, these dark qualities come to define the one tiny group in Europe that remains conspicuously outside the universal religion of humanity. This dialectical relationship between Christians and Jews, which is rooted in theology and characterized by a psychological splitting, is one of the pivots of Western history. The history of anti-Semitism is a process of reconfiguration, the basic template of which is Christian. The characteristics of the Jew, of this figment created by Christianity, remain consistent, despite being secularized during the 18th and 19th centuries, Islamized from the beginning of the 20th, sorry, from the middle of the 20th century, and globalized via the internet and satellite television since 2001. Ironically, these later reconfigurations of Christian anti-Semitism have their own Bible of sorts, the Protocols of the Learned and Elders of Zion. Today we have a world that meets the Jewish people through this libelous forgery, 
a text that reinforces all the same New Testament characteristics of the Jew. He is conspiratorial, cruel, powerful, hateful, dishonest, immoral, selfish, arrogant, and most significantly, he is a victimizer, once again engaged in his own particularistic assault on universal humanity. In the anti-Semitic imagination, now as in the past, the Jew is a nihilistic creature, obsessed only with himself, whose selfish Jewish interests make him an enemy of humanity and of any universal religion or movement for the broader interests of humanity. This is the classic and consistent dynamic of anti-Semitism, which is, in essence, a hatred of Jewish particularism. Historically, Jewish religion and nationalism have both been perceived as dangerously exclusive and hopelessly particularistic, and therefore for hostile to humanity. One can see how any movement that sees itself as universal, be it Christianity, Islam, Marxism, or the contemporary international lobby for human rights, will have difficulty, to say the least, with Judaism and Zionism as they are broadly understood by most people. Whether in the West or the Middle East, be it termed old or new, classic or contemporary, we are dealing with a vicious, dehumanizing, and libelous phenomenon. Post-Christian forms of anti-Semitism all have at their core a caricature that far too many people believe corresponds to actually existing Jews. The word caricature we take from the Italian verb caricare, which means to exaggerate, but also tellingly to attack and to rouse. One of the truly frightening and dangerous aspects of anti-Semitism is the provocative and threatening nature of this character at its center. The Jew literally provokes resistance, defense, and attack from those who believe he exists. The violence, be it physical or rhetorical, that one perpetrates against the Jew is justified because it is conceived as an act of self-defense. All anti-Semites, regardless of time and place, see themselves as victims of the Jews. The general ignorance about Judaism, Zionism, and Jewish history in the world does not help matters today, nor does our own ever-expanding lack of historical knowledge and sensibility. The misuse and complete bastardization of the Western historical record is quite frankly what much of Islamic anti-Semitism rests upon, and historians have an obligation, in my opinion, to begin to address this very serious problem. You can see this very clearly in Menachem's uh, presentation. The only way that this mythological character can be disabled is by demonstrating that he is not real. The problem, of course, is that you have a book like The Protocols, sold around the world today in record number of editions, which is promoted by government and religious leaders, educators, and academics as a historical text. The book is used to explain the workings of international economics and politics, and the ongoing war between Israel and the Palestinians, very much like the New Testament, and later the Protocols were used to illustrate and explain supposed Jewish machinations in Europe. I would like to conclude by discussing the possible reasons for the persistent appeal of this character, especially outside its original <coughs> theological context. One thing we can say with certainty now is that anti-Semitism is no longer strictly a Western phenomenon. It no longer requires Christian theology or culture, however secularized, to function and to resonate with or appeal to the masses. This is a new development for the study of the history of anti-Semitism and it is worrying. 
As ugly as Christian anti-Semitism is, we could at least take comfort in the fact that it only made sense in a Christian or post-Christian context and could therefore be contained. Anti-Semitism, unfortunately, is not only a function of religious theology or of culture, as we have very, until very recently thought, but also taps into our nature as human beings. As a species, we have a general reluctance to examine ourselves critically and to admit our own faults, limitations, and mistakes. We have great difficulty taking responsibility for our own negative circumstances and for our own role in creating them or helping to create them. It is far easier and much more soothing to our egos to conceive of oneself as a victim, as someone who has been mistreated and exploited through no fault of our own. This operates on an individual basis, but also collectively. And the dynamic effects, and the dynamic affects all forms of political culture to one degree or another. In an increasingly complex global economic environment, in an ever-changing, bewildering world, it is simply easier and therefore appealing to blame a very well-established and precedented Jewish conspiracy for the fate of the world and for one's misfortune, however conceived. This is far easier than engaging in the hard work of investigating the complex social, political, economic, and historical relationships that surround us and that we ourselves influence. Nietzsche called this process by which human beings assign blame for our own failures and frustrations présentement. While this dynamic has always driven anti-Semitism, it seems to be ever more central to contemporary reconfigurations of the phenomenon. pleased to be invited to present a paper to this conference, and I am sad that we have to have this kind of conference. As King Henry VIII was reputed to have said to each of his many wives, I will now say to you, I will keep none of you too long. <laughs> it is undoubtedly as true as it is distressing that the century, centuries-old phenomenon of demonizing threatening and persecuting Jewish people for who they are and not for what they may have done is still in existence today. One would have thought that after the Holocaust decimated European Jewry and the Allied victory over a singularly genocidal, racist and anti-Western and anti-modernist regime, the persistent flames of Jew hatred would have been doused, becoming no more than a cottage industry of a few isolated lunatic clusters of reactionaries. Sadly, our observations show that the sanguine expectation requires traumatic consideration. For a resurgent viral anti-Semitism is growing into a far more global danger for Jews. And it's part and parcel of a recent worldwide wave of highly polarized intolerance toward what some philosophers call the other. Further, as the and guilt about the Holocaust recedes into historical and mnemonic oblivion, public expressions of contempt and intolerance for Jews seems to be gaining ground. In any case, my paper will offer a few random thoughts about this resurgent anti-Semitism. 
I shall briefly, briefly focus on two important areas of concern. Pope Benedict XVI's apparent turn toward a more traditionalist understanding of Catholicism as it reawakens the church's historical dogma, which has always proven so threatening to the existence of the Jewish people. And the Iran-Israel dispute in which the Iranian leadership continues its genocidal incitement against the world's only Jewish state. For this paper's limited scope, I have chosen to sidestep other crucial anti-Semitic events as current campus calls for boycotts against Israelis and products made in Israel, disruptive Israel bashers on European and American campuses like the University of California at Irvine, where an Israeli ambassador was shouted down disgracefully in February of this year, neo-Nazi marches in Europe, for example, in Hungary, random physical attacks on individual Jews and Jewish institutions around the world, Holocaust denial conferences, and effusions of cyber hate and cyber bullying and cyber-based recruitment against Jews and against Israel, and so on. However, I will concentrate my remarks specifically on two faith-based global communities, Catholics and Muslims. Statistically, they constitute together almost one-third of the world's seven billion people. If we include all Christians, then the tally would be closer to one-half. The fact that the Jews are a minuscule minority, perhaps 13 million, is relevant because anti-Semitism may flourish with or without a Jewish presence. Despite the significant conflicts and differences between and within these two communities, the Jewish people have had reserved for them a special nefarious standing in the New Testament and in the Quran. Each faith has a lengthy history of persecutory anti-Semitism and a scriptural basis from which to justify its actions against Jews. Since papal authority has such tremendous, though not always decisive, critical influence over the beliefs and behaviors of Catholics, and also because the church's anti-Semitic history requires constant vigilance, a possible turn towards such past practices and beliefs should command our attention. Have to have a little refreshment. Similarly, some mainstream as well as extremists among Muslims often cite passages in the Quran unflattering and incendiary towards the Jews to press their calls for a jihad or holy war. Jewish institutions and against Jews and most prominently against Israel and also against infidels and apostates. Admittedly, only a small fraction of the world's Muslims are anti-Semitic jihadis. But their increasingly successful efforts at recruitment to their various causes, especially when Islamic heads of state from Malaysia to Iran call for a genocidal anti-Semitism against Israel, and when the president of Iran removes government officials like he did recently the tourism minister from Spain because they became too friendly to individual Israelis. Any distinction between Israel and its Jewish citizens or Jews in general as the genuine target of their animus tends to collapse. As one astute non-Jewish writer observes, 
There is anti-Semitism, that is Jew hatred, and anti-Zionism, with its anti-Semitic and purely political forms. For example, in Europe, a cause might, and I'm quoting him now, a cause might advance in the name of anti-Zionism, but Europe's Jews were being attacked because they were Jews. In practice, anti-Semitism and anti-Zionism were approving and disapproving ways of describing the same thing. In regard to both faith-based communities, noted above, it is impossible to know for certain how many of their adherents harbor anti-Jewish beliefs and sentiments which lie dormant and are aroused under a conducive mix of favorable circumstances. Thus, their leaders' words assume a much greater importance and influence than those of ordinary people. Generally, as we have learned from the incessant barrage of abiding anti-Jewish propaganda in the case of pre-Hitlerite Germany, this was the foundation upon which the Nazi regime implemented its final solution. Government encouragement of anti-Semitism, as in Iran, like in Germany, with its proxies Hezbollah and Hamas, must be taken very seriously. In that, so many fine scholars have contributed to the voluminous body of literature tracing the historical roots, causes, and diverse forms of anti-Semitism, I will assume the reader's knowledge of these matters. So I will not approach this well-researched topic systematically in this paper. In a qualified sense, the current waves of anti-Semitism may be called anti-modernist. Usually, modernism refers to the following. The presupposition that the seat of moral, and socio-political value resides ultimately in individual autonomy, with each person being entitled to equal moral consideration, the principle of moral equality. The doctrine of universal, natural, or human rights, and the concomitant principles of freedom of expression, toleration, and multicultural diversity. The free market economies of capitalism, the democratization of societies, the standard of scientific rationality and the idea of inevitable progress in history. And also, of course, respect for the institution of a just rule of law, namely constitutionalism. Anti-modernism, for the present purpose, is a manifest repudiation and exploitation of the aforementioned themes of modernism to serve certain parochial, reactionary interests in the context selected. The net effect of the anti-modernist impulse is, in my opinion, to enlarge the public space for tolerating virulent and deadly expressions of customary anti-Semitic beliefs. It is a basic thesis of my paper that anti-Semitism assumes a more dangerous status as institutions of high authority, whether governments or powerful religious organizations not only tolerate hate-driven expressions of Jew hatred, but move toward actually encouraging them. Now, I know I'm making a little reference, I have to make a little reference to the mosque debate near the World, where the World Trade Center once stood. The building, of course, that they're going to use, originally the Burlington Coat Factory, which had suffered damage, by the way. It's so close ground zero that it did suffer some structural damage. In any case, I know 
that many of us do have a concern without yielding to the charge of Islamophobia, which I consider to be in many respects a spurious charge. Why? Uh, and I'll mention about the mosque in a moment. A phobia, to my way of thinking, is a kind of mental defect of some kind or other. Many people do have Islamophobia, which has nothing to do with a mental defect. They do have a genuine concern about building a mosque so close to ground zero. They do have a concern about where the funding is coming from. And they do have a concern about what that mosque is going to be used for. I know it's supposed to be an Islamic community center, but it's probably going to be a bit unlike a Jewish community center, I would suspect. But I don't know that that's true. I don't know that that's true. I think that very often many of us fear that as mosques and madrasas are used for recruitment of future jihadists, that we don't know for sure whether that mosque would be used for that purpose. <coughs> All right, in my view, anti-Semitism is a vicious form of hate which attempts in word or deed to deliberately harm, persecute, or destroy the physical, cultural, or spiritual being of Jewish people symbols and institutions of Judaism and or the Jewish state of Israel. At the very least, what Jews want in society, many do, is just simply, simply normalcy. Instead, what they often receive in some parts of the world today is more akin to updated versions of traditional toxic anti-Semitic indictments like perpetrating usury in the banking system, causing the plagues and illnesses like AIDS and H1N1 poisoning wells. And when Christian or Muslim children are killed, the Jews were or are accused of using their blood to make Passover matzah or pastry, of course the infamous blood libel. And now Jews or Israelis are accused of harvesting the organs of Palestinian children after Operation Cast Lead in Gaza last year. And we even find that Nazi genocide or Holocaust blamed on its Jewish victims or that some contemporary Jewish scholars are charged with exploiting the Holocaust and turning it into an industry for sympathy and financial gain. And finally, building on the usual historical anti-Semitism, Jews stand accused of Islam by Islamist terrorists of fomenting 9-11 and the anthrax attacks and a hidden conspiracy that recruited others to do their dirty work. In this vein, the former Prime Minister of Malaysia in a 2003 speech to the Organization of Islamic Conference, and again in early 2010 in support of Al-Quds, quote, today Jews rule the world by proxy. They get others to fight and die for them, end of quote. Even the Honduras, even in the, the Cardinal of Honduras recently blamed the sex scandals of the church on the Jews. Borrowing from centuries-old scripture-based Christian anti-Semitism, Many Arab and Muslim governments and their controlled media use such hate-bound defamatory items such as the notoriously anti-Semitic protocols of the Elders of Zion, a late 19th century tract thought to originate with the Okrana, the Tsarist uh, uh, police in Paris. I understand that many hotels from Jordan to Egypt and Iran carry copies of the protocols like we often carry copies of the, have copies of the Bible in our hotel rooms. Egypt broadcast in 2002 a series based on the protocols called The Night Without a Horse, 
and Saudi, Egyptian, and Palestinian newspapers like Al Riyadh, Al Akbar, and Al Quds often publish excerpts, along with Nazified cartoons, caricaturing uh, uh, Jews and Israelis, and many textbooks and madrasas teach and preach the protocols. What is this anti-Jewish screed of which the Nazi Reich's propagandists made such vitriolic use? It accuses Jews, all Jews, everywhere and every when, of attempting to seize the reins of global power through the manipulation of banks and other financial institutions, the media, and the cultural and political institutions of all countries. For example, in the first protocol, it asserts that the real power of the Jewish world conspiracy is invincible because it is invisible. The pervasive fear of the hidden hand of the Jews, which works behind the visible, has become a centerpiece of anti-Semitism today. As with other paranoid conspiracy theories of this sort, it is clear that if evidence of a conspiracy is lacking, the conspiracy theorists claim that the lack of evidence is proof positive of a, secret of a secretive conspiracy. That is, if one cannot prove that ghosts do not exist, then it's assumed that's as evidence that they do. Perhaps it was that during the European Enlightenment and only to the rise of liberal society, with its individual rights-based freedoms that the Jews were accused of or suspected of using their newfound freedoms for devious, hidden, self-interested purposes, meaning that from society's perspective, Jews are basically cosmopolitan and rootless. I ask then, with five short minutes remaining while I do my dance, is there an emerging downturn in Catholic-Jewish relations? Pope Benedict XVI's policy towards the Jews is becoming problematic because it gives the appearance of inconsistency, backsliding, or cynically worse. His two predecessors gave the Jewish people and progressive Catholics substantial reasons to believe that the Catholic Church is finally done with tormenting Jews and accordingly was actively purging its liturgy of the teachings and interpretations which powered so much of its persecutory anti-Semitism by its adherence for so many years, for so many centuries. Indeed, 45 years ago, the uh, Second Vatican Council in 1965 issued its landmark Nostra Aetate in our time. Uh, it explicitly rejected the charge of deicide and held that the Jewish people are not culpable for Jesus' crucifixion. Further, it asserted that they, the Jews, remained, quote, most dear to God. This stunning reversal of the church's previous triumphalism and supersessionism would mark a dramatic and official, it was hoped, irreversible change in Catholic-Jewish relations in the future. Another illustration is that the Catholic liturgy would have expunged from it a prayer calling for the conversion of Jews. Of course, this prayer implies the superiority of Catholicism. It would then seem to follow that the case for sainthood for the Jewish Carmelite, Jewish-born Carmelite nun, Edith Stein, would be put on hold indefinitely. She converted to Catholicism because she hoped it would help her to escape a one-way trip to the Nazis' final solution. It did not, for she too perished in the Nazis' exterminative machinery. Also on the positive side of the ledger, there have been a number of interfaith services, papal visits to synagogues and to Israel, as well as other genuine efforts by some Catholic and Protestant clergy and theologians to underscore the ecumenical idea 
that the Jews are to be regarded as elder brothers instead of as a dangerous, expendable, God-forsaken leftovers from pre-Christian times. However, the current Pope is raising the specter of the reversibility of the irreversible, sanguine prospect for further improvement in Catholic-Jewish relations. The senior correspondent for the National Catholic Reporter, John Allen Jr., has tried to give an account of Benedict's Jewish policy because its patent inconsistencies are raising some serious warning signs in parts of the Jewish community. Allen Jr. explains that such inconsistencies are at best merely apparent, which ultimately resolve into coherency, says he, once outside observers, presumably Jews, understand that Benedict is really addressing Catholics and only Catholics. His goal, says Allen Jr., is to purge the church of the elements of secularism. Moreover, Allen states that the Pope's policy may not be everything some Jews desire, but at this moment in Catholic history, it may well be as good as it gets. End of quote. In brief, some of these inconsistencies involve the rehabilitation of the Holocaust-denying Bishop Williamson, move Pope Pius XII, wartime pope whose public record in the face of the Nazi genocide was, according to the public records released so far, mostly silence, a step closer to sainthood, and reintroduced a Good Friday prayer that calls for the conversion of Jews. Granted, this German pope visits synagogues and Nazi death camps and couples these important gestures with professions of abiding and meaningful esteem and affection for Judaism. But it is important to remember the Catholic Church's centuries-old religion-based persecutory anti-Semitism. Given this dreadful history, in light of Benedict's predecessors' ecumenical efforts to confront and reverse some of the Church's doctrinal basis for religious anti-Semitism, the inconsistencies in Benedict's policies reignite the embers of mistrust and fear in the hearts of many Jews. On a more sobering note, we should underscore that any improved relations between Catholics and Jews must be qualified, since anti-Semitic beliefs, attitudes, feelings, or sympathies have been well-nurtured and sustained for years by many on the parish level. And these are not always amenable to papal directives or theological pronouncements. I guess I'm supposed to stop. Well, you can finish up. Is it okay? Yeah. I noticed David didn't. Can I ask you one question? Is that not? Yeah, I'm not done yet. Oh, I'm but don't forget your question. Okay. Write it down, please. All right? Good. All right. In a discernible historical movement from religious to bioracial forms of anti Semitism, in addition to Holocaust revisionism or denial, a very hurtful facet of current Jew hatred is the jarring attempt by many parties in the Arab and Muslim world to delegitimize the Jewish state of Israel. That is, to deny it has a right to exist as the world's only Jewish country, as a nation equal to all others in its, in, uh, in its inviolable sovereignty, as recognized by the United Nations. In addition, Holocaust denial itself may be seen as a strategy for re-legitimizing public expressions of anti-Semitism. This newer current of anti-Semitism seeks to eclipse a people's presumed natural entitlement to have its history publicly validated. As Israel's enemies continue to propagate negative stereotypes and myths about Jews as a people, 
It degrades them as individuals, groups, and as a nation by denying or seeking to deny to them the publicly enforced validation they need to flourish as a people. As a significant sidebar, both religious traditions of Christianity and Islam have been obsessed with the Jews from time immemorial and the Jews' failure to accept the teachings or prophecies of Jesus and Muhammad. And as you all probably know, the Quran is probably spent, 25% of the Quran is devoted to comments about Jews. The Islamic Republic of Iran, its formal constitutional title, has been striving to the mantle of regional leadership in the Mideastern Muslim world, so its proclamations do matter. Its leading cleric, Ali Khamenei, and its president, Mahmoud Ahmadinejad, have persistently been threatening to wipe Israel off the map once it has the nuclear capability to accomplish its genocidal ambition, that is, to, call, to cause a second Holocaust while denying that the first one occurred. They also refer to Israel as the Zionist entity or regime, and never by its proper name. If history teaches us anything, we who support Israel, but not uncritically, ought to avoid the foolishness of dismissing such remarks by Iran's leadership as the rantings of mere lunatics or as simple political hyperbole for domestic and for its proper domestic consumption and for its proxies like Hamas in Gaza and Hezbollah in Lebanon. In a recent website posting as reported in the New York Times, Ayatollah Khamenei reportedly said, and I quote, definitely the day will come when nations of the, regime, of the region will witness the destruction of the Zionist regime. Further, he states, how soon or late Israel's demise will uh, happen depends on how Islamic countries and Muslim nations approach the issue. This remark, as we've all understood in this conference, is a thinly disguised call for genocide. Moreover, he calls Iran to the permanent struggle against this international pariah, its divine duty. The continuing hostility against Israel and its people by the Iranian regime officially began in 1979 when the revolutionary Islamic theocracy severed diplomatic relations with Israel. To successfully do so seems to suggest fertile soil among many, uh, among, uh, many segments of the Iranian people for a ferocious hatred that clearly predates the regime's ascension to power. As the Persian non-Arab Islamic Republic of Iran moves closer to producing nuclear weapons. Despite its perfidious public denials, the Israelis have the option to strike Iran militarily. However, doing so will be at much greater risk of abysmal failure because Iran learned from the history the mistake that Saddam Hussein made in placing its reactor in only one location, Osiris. Israel destroyed it in 1981 in one collective sortie. It is too. Sorry, yeah, that's okay. Closing remarks. Then. I'm sorry. It's closing remarks. Yeah. I'm sorry. I can't hear you. Yeah, just we have to. That's it. Closing remarks. Okay. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you. He's fine. Sorry, I should have said that. He's fine. He's well. Um, Anti-Semitism can be a killer. Um, <laughs> he, he's, he's well. He just. Um, 
the, the flight and everything, he's fine. But I, I did feel a bit like Michael Moore, sort of measuring the American health system. So, actually worked quite well. Um, so, okay, um, so I'll try and get into the game. But apologies to the two previous speakers for not being Okay, thank you. Right, um, the title of the paper is different from the program, I'm afraid. For the Agambanites who wanted to hear about state of exception and ontology, that is half completed on my computer. Uh, the theme of that paper was that once you start ontologizing uh, politics, you end up ontologizing everything. And then I was going to go on with Badiou, but that's not what I'm going to do today. Uh, what I'm going to do today is called the New Europe Holocaust Memory and Antisemitism. Um, and if you don't mind, I'm going to read it, but try and read it in a sort of engaging tone. Um, so, the New York Holocaust Memory and Antisemitism Introduction. This paper is part of a larger project that looks at the ways in which the Holocaust comes to be subsumed within the discursive framework of contemporary forms of anti-Zionism, anti-Semitism, and or anti-Zionism. Here I examine this tendency as it plays itself out at the intersection of two interrelated narratives. The construction of the new Europe and its self-legitimizing by the transmission of the Holocaust to, or the concept of the Holocaust, to Holocaust memory. Drawing on the concept of Holocaust dissolution that I've developed elsewhere, I argue that the new Europe's Holocaust memory rests ultimately on dissolving the specifically Jewish dimensions of genocide into an overarching concept of modernity, now transcended, but thought to capture the essence of the old Europe. Two consequences follow from this premise. The first is the strict equation made of genocidal anti-Semitism and modernity. And second, intimately, uh, intimately related consequence, is the theoretical inability to recognize non-genocidal anti-Semitism, not only in the old Europe, but also in its new incarnation. I argue finally that it is this lack of recognition of even the possibility of anti-Semitism that accounts not only for the denials of claims of contemporary European anti-Semitism, but also the venom with which those claims are met and accusations of bad faith and Jewish particularism that accompanies them. The first uh, section is New Europe, the Holocaust and Holocaust memory. And here I start with a quote from Robert Fine. Um, Shall I not make it to the end of the quote? Please uh, do what we've done. Um, writing in a recent essay, Fines offers a succinct account of the nature of Holocaust memory within the legitimizing practices of the new Europe. It's worth quoting at length as a paragraph. After 1989, the Europeanization of Eastern Europe drew the former satellite centuries of the so uh, countries of the Soviet bloc into the orbit of Holocaust commemoration. The Holocaust and Auschwitz became universal references for absolute evil. In this context, one temptation is to give the story of European anti-Semitism a happy ending and to pay tribute to the success of the new Europe in transcending its longest hatred. Anti-Semitism is tucked safely away in Europe's past, overcome by the defeat of fascism and the development of the Soviet Union. The rise of political anti-Semitism in the late 19th century and its consolidation as an exterminating anti-Semitism in the 20th century 
are associated with the ethnic nationalism that prevailed in Europe at the time. Um, it's now while the end of anti-Semitism is associated with the universal civic values now embodied in the European Union and European Convention on Human Rights. This reassuring narrative looks back to an era in which anti-Semites saw themselves as guardians of the ethnically pure nation-state and forward to a post-national Europe in which anti-Semitism is remembered but only as a residual trauma or a museum piece. Thus, the idea of Europe as a civilized content is rescued from the wreckage. In Fine's account of the distinction between the old and new Europe is a series of strictly demarcated binary oppositions, the nation-state, Europe, nationalism, cosmopolitanism, fascism, human rights, politics, civil society, genocidal anti-Semitism, pluralism. New Europe, in short, defines itself through its overcoming and neutralizing of the first term of each of their couplets and their safe consignment to the past. In this context, Holocaust memory and the Holocaust itself becomes the bridge or hinge between the old and new Europe. Again, in their recent, sorry, in their recent work on Holocaust memory, Levy and Schneider state, and this is the last lengthy quote, the, the Holocaust constitutes an epochal break it has therefore the potential of challenging basic national assumptions, like sovereign law in its own territory, and creating a cosmopolitanized public and political space that reinforces moral dependencies. What has pushed the Holocaust to such prominence in public thinking has been the indispensable role it has served in the transition from a world of national sovereignty to a world of interconnectedness and toward a more cosmopolitanized global society of which the proliferation of human rights regimes is a prominent manifestation. We see here again the Holocaust cast in the role as epochal break between the old and the new, and as containing the, the potential of bringing into existence the new, whether in Europe or elsewhere. But we also see a further oppositional couplet, that of Holocaust and of Holocaust memory. Again, the first term is consigned to the past, quite rightly, and the second is seemingly rooted in the present. However, in the content of their representation of the Holocaust, both in itself and in the context of New Europe's Holocaust memory, there is a line of continuity that crosses this assumed demarcation. That strand of continuity is what I refer to as Holocaust dissolution. More specifically, I argue that the presentation of the Holocaust as Holocaust memory dissolves the praxis of genocidal anti-Semitism into a general or universalized account of the old or modern Europe in such a way that any recognition of its particularities that may account for the genocide are lost as, it, as is the ability to recognize non-exterminatory forms of anti-Jewish hostility. In the following section of the paper, which I won't discuss today, I look at how critical theory has dissolved the uh, Holocaust, genocide, uh, the genocide of the Jews, into the general overarching structures of modernity. Modernity becomes genocidal. And in that way, the, specific, the, specificity, specific, 
the particularism <laughs> of the Jewish dimension gets lost. Um, and, it, and there's been a move recently to the political, and that, so therefore it becomes nothing but an object of, of political will. However, I'll leave that aside. I, I've discussed that elsewhere, elsewhere in my work. But what I'll do here, for about the next five minutes or so, is look at um, Holocaust memory and, and, um, and Holocaust dissolution. All that remains, from what I said earlier, in, in post-national and post-modern Europe is the memory of the Holocaust. But it is less a memory of the Holocaust itself than a memory of the modernity into which the Holocaust was dissolved. Separated from the structural conditions that is said to make it possible, the Holocaust of New Europe's memory becomes nothing more than a symbol. It is a symbol, however, not of anti-Semitism per se, genocidal or otherwise, but of the old Europe itself. The old Europe fragmented into nation states, along with its concomitants of national sovereignty, nationalism, and the genocidal impulse that is said to be inherent within it. Expressing its distance from the world that made the Holocaust possible, the new European symbol of the Holocaust is recast in the language of morality. The symbol's purpose and function is to serve as a warning to be sounded whenever and wherever any of the tendencies of the old Europe threaten to appear or reappear. The moral imperative contained in the symbolism of the Holocaust is contained in the maxim, never again Auschwitz. It is to this symbolic value that uh, Dubell refers in his article, The Remembrance of the Holocaust as a Catalyst for Transnational Ethics, it's a question, um, when he notes that, again a small quote, for the Holocaust now provides a meta-narrative for sufferings inflicted for political reasons. It has turned into the supra-denominational passion story of late modernity. Concepts, symbols, and images are taken out of their immediate context and are employed to code in a single term the collective pain that people inflict on others. The symbolic repertoire has been adopted by political groups all over the world who are subject to extreme pain and distress. It is, the present in the political, in the, it is present in the political defense of human rights, in the remoralizing of diplomacy, and in the turning away of the morally neutral real politic. We see here an example not only of Holocaust dissolution and resurfacing as post-national and post-modern symbol, we also see its resurfacing within the register of morality. Symbolic representation within this register forms a context in which claims of contemporary anti-Semitism are denied and creates the conditions for the particular intensity of those denials. Perhaps the most concise way to explain this aspect, perhaps the most concise way of, to explain this aspect of Holocaust dissolution is by analogy with Adorno and Horkheimer's critique of commodification. For Adorno and Horkheimer, commodification is the process whereby unique and distinct elements of nature are caught up within the near universal realm of exchange. As a condition of entry, each individual element has to become exchangeable for all others. As a consequence of this demand, any specific or particular quality that inheres within them and which obstructs that exchange has to be expunged. It is only when emptied of such content and reformulated in strictly formal and hence universal terms that an element becomes a commodity and can take, take its place within the exchange realm of the economy. 
To me, this notion of commodification marks discussions of New Europe's adoption and adaption of genocidal anti-Semitism as a moral symbol and explains the dissolution of the specificities of the Holocaust into formal universal terms. The point comes to the fore almost immediately in Levi and Schneider's and Dubai's work on Holocaust memory. Depicting its symbolic value in terms of its abstract nature of good and evil, quote, that was a quote, the Holocaust, the Holocaust can only serve its role as universal warning, warning and call to action once it has been abstracted from, or rather emptied of, its particular elements of its historical occurrence, including, of course, its specifically Jewish dimensions, among which is the presence of anti-Semitism. It is only in such circumstances that the Holocaust, now presented in abstract, formal, and universal terms, is free to play the symbolic role allocated to it. In such a form, it takes its place as an ethical commodity within the exchange realm of New York's moral economy. It is only at this stage, therefore, when the Holocaust becomes freely exchangeable for any other number of situations, is its dissolution, a dissolution inherent in its symbolic value, is it complete. It is as a consequence of such commodification and the dissolution of which it is a part that Levi and Schneider note, the Holocaust is now a concept that has been dislocated from time and space, precisely because it can be used to dramatize any injustice, racism, or crime perpetrated anywhere in the planet, on the planet. However, as Adorno and Horkheimer argue, what cannot be contained within the commodity, that is its particular aspect of the natural element that resists and obstructs its universalization, that content reappears in the image of a threatening and unpredictable, untamed nature. Whilst on the one hand, the commodity's formal attributes permits its inclusion in the realm of exchange, on the other hand, its now expunged particularities, I've given up trying to say specificities, its now expunged particularities, that which obstructs such entry, are recast as nothing more than an irrational remnant of the past or as no more than a superstitious myth having no place in the increasingly rationalized, i.e. commodified world. These particularisms are rejected in that world, and, become, and they become that which cannot be recognized and subject to the status of taboo. Let me, make more, uh, let me now make more direct this analogy between Holocaust memory and the twin aspects of Adorno and Horkheimer's conception of commodification in order to shed light upon the, upon the intense denials by many to claims of contemporary anti-Semitism. Read into the very fiber of modernity of the old Europe, genocidal anti-Semitism takes on the appearance of a natural phenomenon and is raised to the status of a law of nature. From the perspective of the new Europe, whose self-representation turns on the, on the overcoming of such anti-Semitism, any recognition of its existence, whether as a continuation of past manifestations or as a new phenomenon, serve to undermine its defining claim. This factor goes alone goes some way to understanding the intensity and denial of contemporary claims of anti-Semitism. To, to this initial point, however, a further element can be identified. In an era in which anti-Semitism is deemed a thing of the past, Claims of its contemporary present 
appear to be no more than claims to see an irrational legacy in the past of less enlightened times. Now that the Holocaust has become commodified, its now expunged content, its particularities, its potential continued existence as untamed nature, its anti-Semitism, takes on the aura of superstition and taboo. Conclusion. In this paper, I have sought to understand why claims of contemporary anti-Semitism are met with such intense denial. Looking at the problem within the context of the new Europe, I've argued that the underpinning cause of the intensity of denial is that the account of the Holocaust as an inherent outcome of modernity and its reframing as Holocaust memory and universal moral symbol required dis dissolving the particularities of, the, of its Jewish dimensions, including dissolving the phenomenon of anti-Semitism into more universalized and generalized concepts. Uh, I'll go through the whole conclusion, even though part of it refers to the first part. First, in New Europe's political reading of the Holocaust, anti-Semitism is recast as genocide. As a consequence, any consideration of modern anti-Semitism that does not fit into this genocidal concept remain, remains both unseen and untheorized. In many ways, if such anti-Semitism does appear in these accounts, it is often presented as no more than a remnant from pre-modern times and hardly worthy of reflection. Second, a, second, a similar dissolution is present in New Europe's moralizing of the Holocaust. Certain of its overcoming, certain of, its overcoming of genocidal anti-Semitism, New Europe reduces the Holocaust to the symbolic value of an abstract and formal universal moral imperative. Again, however, this universalizing is dependent on the expulsion of that aspect of the Holocaust specifically Jewish content. In both these instances, claims of anti-Semitism, genocidal or otherwise, are seen as no more than remnants of a previous age, an age now safe, safely overcome with all but impossible to correct credit with any degree of seriousness. However, and more fundamentally, anti-Semitism as an autonomous phenomenon, uh, that's a dodgy expression, but on whose, uh, an autonomous phenomenon, one whose meaning, direction, and outcome are not determined by what amounts to an omnipotent political will to power, that is, one whose causes and responsibility are not contained and containable, is written out, not only the structure of New Europe itself, but also out of the history, out of the prehistory of the old Europe that it is said to overcome. In this context, therefore, the abject denial of anti-Semitism and the claims of bad faith associated with such denial may not be surprising. From the perspective of New Europe, not only does anti-Semitism not exist today, it has, as a phenomenon with specifically Jewish dimensions, never really existed in the past either.